Amen. Let's take our Bibles. We'll look in the Scriptures this morning in Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54. And unless you've been living under a rock somewhere, you probably have heard that Israel has been in the news lately. And war is breaking out in Israel. And you have Hamas, a terrorist group that led this devastating attack. They're calling it their 9-11. And Israel now responding, declaring war, and as we speak, probably uh, fighting back. And there's a lot of opinions about that, even in our own country. People protesting, counter-protesting. I will say this, I think it's sad when people actually come out and say, we're for Hamas. That's ridiculous. I saw one group of protesters that said, queers for Hamas. A lot of problems with that statement, first of all. The worst is probably that if you actually knew what Hamas believed, they want to take you and throw you off a building. So that doesn't even make any sense to me. But ultimately, I want to say this. What's happening in Israel is not political. There's a lot of scriptural basis for what we see throughout history for Israel, and also what God's plans are for Israel in the future. And I want us to look at one prophecy here in Isaiah 54. And we might be here this morning thinking, well, I'm not a Jew, I'm not an Israelite, what does this have to do with me? But these, this is the promises for God's people, and they include us too, amen? And God's faithfulness and His plans for Israel will impact all the world. And we're going to see about that this morning. Isaiah 54 and verse 1 the Bible says, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thy habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. Shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman, forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall, be, uh, shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. 
O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires. And I will make thy windows of gates and thy gates of carbuncle and thy borders of pleasant stones. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together again uh, against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth as an instrument for his works. And I have created the water, the waster, to destroy. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for what it teaches us about your character, your faithfulness, and Lord, we see all of that in your promises to Israel. We pray for Israel this morning. We pray for peace and protection, and ultimately we know, Lord, we pray for their salvation, that they would receive Jesus as their Messiah. Lord, as we pray for the ultimate peace of the city of Jerusalem, that ultimately is a prayer for your return, and we ought to be looking Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ought to be looking for that glorious hope as Christians. Would you stir our hearts that your return may be very close? And even the last few Sundays as we've looked at these truths that ought to motivate us to live for you, to get busy serving you and getting the gospel out while there's still time. We pray that you would help us to not only hear your word, but to be doers of your word this morning, applying it to our lives. We pray that the prophecies of Israel's deliverance Lord, apply as Christians that we can be saved from our sin because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And my prayer is also for any unbeliever that's here that they would repent and be saved by trusting in Christ. So Lord, have your way in our hearts. Would you fill with your spirit and work as only you can do? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to preach this morning on the future restoration of Israel. A very important topic that you see really throughout the Bible of God's plans for Israel. And as I mentioned earlier, Israel's war with Hamas is front page news all over the world. And apart from the Bible, it really makes no sense of the situation that's happening there. You have in that region of the Middle East, dozens of Muslim countries, Arab countries, and one small territory of a Jewish state. And that's just enough to make everyone go crazy. And you look really, it goes back to Bible times, the conflicts that arose over that region, especially the city of Jerusalem. But such an international headliner, what's happening, and if you know anything about Bible prophecy, it all centers around Israel. It all centers around the city of Jerusalem. Our Lord's first coming, much of His ministry first was to Israel, was in and around Jerusalem. At his second coming, he's coming to sit on the throne of David right there in Jerusalem, ruling with a rod of iron. So Israel is very significant in God's eyes and God's prophecies. A wise man once was challenged to give evidence in one word 
that the Bible is divinely inspired. And he replied with one word, Israel. Israel. How can you explain Israel? You look at history, you look at all the conflicts they have endured. How can you explain their continued existence apart from God's faithfulness? Now, I want to say this. It's not going to be Israel's military might. It's not even going to be Israel's supporters like America, which America is the number one supporter of Israel. That's why the terrorists shout death to Israel and also death to America, too. But it's not going to be because of military might or political uh, transactions that are made. It's going to be because of God's faithful promises. God has made special covenants and promises that he will keep when Christ returns. So we say Israel. God created Israel. If you know your Bibles, he chose this people out of all the nations of the world, not because they were the greatest, not because they were the most populous, but because through them, God would use Israel to be a light to all the other nations. God was going to make them an example of his goodness, his grace, and his plan to reach the nations. Israel was supposed to be a missionary nation to go and reach the world. And you read the Old Testament, how God called out Abraham and the 12 tribes of Israel were eventually formed and God promised them a land. You read Genesis 12, God gave them exact territorial dimensions for what land that they would occupy. That's their land promised by God. And God was going to do something with that nation of Israel. It's through the nation of Israel that we get things like the Ten Commandments, that we have our Old Testament the Lord Jesus Christ himself was a Jewish man, that he came under, under, under a Jewish rule there and, and was able to give the gospel. And really, our faith as Christians is a culmination of what God started in the Old Testament. So through that ministry, we see where we are today. And we don't know exactly how things are going to play out, all the details with Israel today. But I will say this. They will never have true, lasting peace until they accept Christ as their Messiah. We're looking at Isaiah 54, but one of the most famous Old Testament passages about Christ is in Isaiah 53. Let's look there, just one chapter back. This is a chapter that we should be preaching and sharing with our Jewish friends and loved ones. Isaiah 53 and verse 1, the Bible says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. But when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, folks, it's very obvious. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Christ was born. But it's very obvious. It jumps off the page that this is a prediction of Jesus. 
that he would come to take on the sins of the world. And the Bible says, with his stripes, we are healed. He was bruised for our transgressions, the Bible says. He was wounded for our iniquities. So the Bible teaches that Christ would come. He would come and there wouldn't be anything remarkable about him, in it, humanly speaking, but he's the son of God. He would come into his own, his own would receive him not. And he would lay down his life. He would die on that cross, not just for the sins of Israel, but for the sins of the whole world. Right? John the Baptist declared, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. That's the Messiah who came. And the first time he came, he came to die on that cross so that you and I can be forgiven of our sins. Folks, have you received Christ as your Messiah? Israel needs to, but you also, all of us, need to repent and believe that Christ died for our sins. If we don't do that and we die in our sins, then all we can expect is the judgment of God in hell. That's right. If you die in your sins, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, looking here in Isaiah, we see very specific prophecies regarding Christ and in Isaiah 54, very specific prophecies regarding Israel. And I want to just read one quote because some people try to merge Israel's promises into the church and they say God is done with Israel and the church has replaced Israel. Alfred Martin wrote this. He said, the most basic principle of Bible interpretation is at stake and those who recklessly deny any future blessings for the nation of Israel have cast themselves adrift in a hopeless sea of allegorism without chart or compass. If all the future blessings promised to the nation of Israel are to be fulfilled spiritually in the church, as many allege, why are not these same interpreters willing to take upon themselves all the curses pronounced upon the nation of Israel? Very interesting. And in Isaiah, we see the first 39 chapters are full of judgment and curses God is warning Israel about. But from chapter 40 to the end of the book, God's promising hope and comfort for Israel. And particularly Isaiah 54, Israel is portrayed as a barren, rejected woman that has been set aside, discarded. But I love what the Bible says here. It says, just for a moment. Look at verse 7. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. Oh yes, God raised up Israel to be a light to the nations. God used Israel to judge various nations, but you know Israel did not stay faithful to God. Israel developed idolatry. They turned and forsook God. They tried to be just like the other pagan nations. And so God then used those pagan nations to judge Israel. And the time of judgment is ongoing, really, even still today. They're in a state of unbelief. I thank God there are many individual Jewish people that get saved, that come to Christ. Our own dear sister Phyllis, pray for her up in the nursing home there in the Bronx. So her and Brother Hans were Jewish believers, and I've known some throughout the years. But in the general sense, the Jews are in a state of unbelief. And since the Old Testament times, a state of affliction and seemingly forsaken by God, but God says, just for a moment, for a small moment, because he still has plans for them. After this temporary separation, Israel will be restored. 
Go to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. The Bible says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them Zion, of course, a reference to Jerusalem there, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build the old wastes, and they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. This is God's prediction of the kingdom. When Christ returns, how Israel will be restored and Jerusalem will be restored. And this is very important for the people in Isaiah's day because they're in judgment. They're captives taken from Jerusalem by Babylon, and they're in a state of judgment. But here God is telling them, listen, there's going to be a future day of blessing, of mercy, of restoration. And what's incredible about these promises is that they, their fulfillment rests not on how good Israel is going to be, not on how mighty, how great their military is going to be, how wonderful they are. It's going to be based on God's faithfulness. It's going to be based on God's might, God's strength, and God's will. It's so encouraging that there are things that God has promised that no one can overthrow, no one can undo, that God's plans will come to fruition. Amen? Isn't that encouraging? That God is that kind of a God that He's so in control of all of human history that no one can overthrow His counsel or plans. That ought to stir us because in your personal life, that's the same that God has a purpose and plan for all of us individually, personally. And as we submit ourselves to God's purpose, God's plan, man, we, we don't have to worry about anything. That doesn't mean, we should, that doesn't mean there's going to be no pain, no trials in life. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that God will never forsake us in those trials. That God's purpose, God's plan will continue even because of those trials oftentimes. The will of God will come to fruition. So Isaiah here is giving a message of hope, ultimately lifting up the nation, understanding what's to come, and by extension, all of us can be so encouraged that, Lord, your promises are true. Let's look closer at these promises that will encourage us. Number one, a promise of prosperity. A promise of prosperity. Look at Isaiah 54, verse 1. The Bible says, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. You know, in the Bible times, there was... A lot of stigma around being a woman that was barren 
or even being a widow, being deserted by your family. There was a lot of suffering and shame for women like that. We can think of examples like Hannah in the Bible. We're, we're studying about Sarah and Abraham there in Genesis, and it was a very shameful thing, a heavy burden to bear in those days. The Bible says this woman's barren, is widow, is deserted. But in the last days, Israel's going to be joyfully singing because God's going to bless her with many children, it says in verse 1. Just like God blessed Sarah, gave her Isaac, right? And God blessed Hannah, gave her Samuel. And God's saying here, listen, you are going to be preserved. You're going to be prosperous and thriving. That's what God's promised for Israel. Now, it's interesting, Israel has never occupied all of the land God gave them. In the days of Joshua, they conquered many of the people there, but they didn't conquer all of the territory. Uh, the, the, the most they ever had was under King Solomon in its heyday, but they never conquered all of it. J. Vernon McGee in his commentary noted God promised 300,000 square miles. At Israel's peak under Solomon, they only occupied 30,000 square miles. That's quite a difference. And now God tells them here in verse 2, Enlarge the place of thy tent. Let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. He's promising expansion and growth and prosperity and blessing. And it shows us the nature of God, His heart. Some people have this mixed up idea that Serving God, following God is all about punishment and, and you, you're going to miss out on life. You'll never have a smile if you start serving God. and Your life is just going to be so miserable because God doesn't wanna, want you to be happy. God wants you to just be miserable. And sometimes we, we give the world that impression because we're sitting in church with a big scowl looking at the pastor. like it's, it's miserable to be a Christian. It's miserable to be saved. Is that the way it is as a Christian life? It's a joyful thing to be a Christian, Amen. It's a joyful thing to be serving the Lord with our lives. It's a blessing to get to honor God and live out our purpose for God. And here we see God is after our good. God's design is to bless His people for His testimony, for His glory. And the amazing promise here is that God wants to bless and enlarge our coast and, and have us be strengthened and prosperous. He says, sing, O barren. Thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. Thou that didst not travail with child. You know, I think of our church and the gospel ministry that we have before us, and we need to pray for a great revival. We need to pray for a great harvest of souls to be saved in Elmont, in Queens, in Brooklyn, in New York City, the whole Northeast, and all of America. We need to pray that more people start turning away from this godless, wicked world, turn away from wicked evolution and transgenderism and all types of wicked ideologies corrupting our culture today, that they turn from that to the true and living God. But I think a lot of Christians, they're so discouraged, so defeated, that they don't, they don't even pray for that anymore. Their mentality is just, well, it just is what it is. Just got to hang on till Jesus comes. But I think we ought to be praying, Lord, may, they, may there be a harvest of souls that come to you. May there be abundance in our churches that there's life and vitality. Hey, in our own personal life, Lord, may there be the overflow of the Holy Spirit's goodness in my life. That it shouldn't just be barren and empty and dead. Because God's plans are to bless and prosper his people. 
He says, enlarge the place of thy tent. Hey, would it be a blessing if God enlarged Bible Baptist Church? Maybe these buildings here can be used for a Christian school, a gymnasium. Maybe we can have the, a house here on the other side to house missionaries and other church staff and leaders. And Wouldn't we, it be amazing if Christians prayed and said, Lord, enlarge thy tents. Enlarge our influence to reach the people with the gospel. Oh, yes, we ought to be praying for that. And then secondly, God promises from shame to honor. They're going to go from shame to honor. In verse 4, he says, Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt not forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. Israel is going to be rescued like a widow woman who, again, in those days, a widow had a a true widow in the biblical sense is someone that not only lost their husband, but they didn't have any man in their life to be a support system, to own land, to be able to provide for them. They had no means of, of, of surviving. It was a very precarious position to be a widow in those days, and it was a shameful thing. And God says, your shame, I'm going to rescue you from all of that shame. You don't have to be afraid. And look at verse 5. For thy maker is thine husband. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Israel as this barren, widow, destitute, and God says, I'm going to come as your husband and rescue you and bring you to myself. That's how blessed you're going to be. That's so powerful. And some people, we have to realize, for us on a personal level, maybe uh, in, our, in our sin, in our past, there's a lot of shame, a lot of regret. And sometimes the devil likes to hang that over our head to discourage us. The devil likes to hang that over our head to keep us from going on from the Lord. And we're, we're kind of bound by that sin, bound by that shameful past and maybe bad habits that we used to have. And God here says, listen, I'm coming to deliver you from all of that baggage, all of that weight. I'm going to make you my wife. I'll be a husband to you. Isn't that what Christ is to the church? He's the bridegroom. We're the bride of Christ. He says, I will come. I will come and rescue you. And Israel, who is seemingly abandoned by God, in those days, Babylon and some of the other nations attacking them, eventually under Roman rule, and you look through history, all the afflictions the Jewish people have faced, most recently the Holocaust and all what the Nazis did, and now today with Hamas and all the terrorism, now they're saying Hezbollah on the other side might be attacking them. And it might seem like the situation is hopeless. But here God promises, for thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. God is coming to their rescue. These promises let us know that the Lord is coming back soon. If you understand what's been happening in history, in 1948, when Israel was made a state again, and now many Jews returning back to Israel there, that's all a part of fulfilled Bible prophecy. That's all setting the stage for what God is promising. And God eventually is going to do something spiritually to cause the Israelites to to see Christ as their Messiah. We pray for their salvation. But this woman who's in shame, 
who's in bondage. She's delivered and rescued and has no more reproach. Go with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And we read here of the Apostle Paul's testimony and also his, his way of life, his philosophy, if you will, that really is interesting to study. It says in Philippians 3, verse 4, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. These are all the accolades Paul could have in his own flesh from a worldly perspective. But notice what he says in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered in the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Folks, Paul understood that he needed to be rescued from his own religion, his own self-effort, and all the worldly accolades that he can turn to Christ and be saved and receive true righteousness. And now he sees the real value of things. That Why would I hold on to this sinful world when I have Christ? He rescued me. He saved me. He gave me his own righteousness. Let's read what he says next in Philippians 3, verse 10. It says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. He's saying, I haven't arrived. I'm still pursuing Christ. The best I know how I want to continue following Christ, He's apprehended me and I want to pursue after Him. Isn't that the Christian life? You know, sometimes we make the Christian life about here's the list of rules that I have to do. Here's all the things I can't do. It's like my to-do list, my do-not-do list. But at the heart of it is this. I'm pursuing after Christ. That I am so consumed with Christ and His love for me that I would rather let everything else go but to follow Christ. What a powerful statement. He says in verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, he understood. He wouldn't have to let his past define him or hold him back, but he could reach forward serving Christ. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've been saved. Understand the Christian life is all about going forward, all about advancing and pursuing after Christ. 
And I mentioned before that the devil would like us to go back and say, hey, remember this past life? Remember this sin? Why don't you go back? Why don't you turn back to that? Uh, that's, the, that's the lesson we learned when Sodom and Gomorrah was being destroyed and Lot and his family being rescued. And what does his wife do? She turned back. Someone said that she, her heart was still there. That's why she turned back. And so many Christians, they've been saved, they've been made righteous by Christ, but they still have a heart appetite for the things of this world. you got to let that go. Paul said, listen, I understand who I am in Christ now, and I want to go forward pursuing after Christ. Understanding all that He's done for me. He's brought me from shame to honor to glory. There's a story told of trappers in northern Africa who had a clever method for capturing monkeys. They would fill up a gourd full of monkey treats, nuts, and other things that they like, and firmly fastened to a branch of a tree, and each hole was just large enough for the monkey to stick his forepaw into it. And when the hungry animal discovers this, he grabs a handful of nuts in his hand, but the hole is too small for him to withdraw his hand out of the gourd. In other words, it's small enough to slip his hand in, but once it's full and cleansed with nuts, he, it's stuck. He doesn't have enough sense to just open up his hand and let it go in order to escape death, and he's easily taken captive. That's often the way the devil works in trying to trap Christians, that he makes us think, this is what you need, this is what you should be reaching for. We get so caught up in the things of this world, so caught up in our flesh and worldly entertainment, worldly amusements and philosophies, and we forget about Christ. We need to let it go, release ourselves of that carnality, and reach forth unto Christ instead. The Apostle Paul understood this. He said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Well, let's go back to our text in Isaiah 54. God's promising the future glory of Israel that He's going to take them from a place of shame, of desolation, being abandoned, to a place of glory, to a place of peace and prosperity. Look at Isaiah 54 and verse 7. It says, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. See, the, the for, being forsaken is past tense, but being restored and rescued is present tense. It's, it's, it's the great mercies is future tense, rather. He says, I will. With great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. This is a hopeful promise that the judgment will pass and mercies will come. In verse 9, he talks about a covenant of peace. He says, For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace 
be removed, saith the Lord, that have mercy on thee. You know, the application for us as Christians is that when you come to Christ as Savior, you enter into a peace treaty. Oh, the Bible says before you're saved, you're at enmity with God. You're at war with God. You're far from God. And we need to make peace with God. And Jesus Christ helps us make peace with God. He forgives us of our sins. We are made righteous in Christ. And now we are in union with God, fellowship with him. And here it talks about an unbroken peace treaty is made. And it's a powerful testimony that when you come to Christ, you're safe and secure forever. The Bible says in Romans 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That we are under that peace and protection and mercy of God. Again, not because of what we've worked up to do, but because of what we've received by faith in Christ. It's a tremendous promise. So man that's at enmity with God is now brought in and made peace with God through Jesus Christ. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he, that's Jesus, is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Oh, it's the great promise that in the church you would have Jew and Gentile come and made peace with God all because of what Jesus has done. Well, God promises peace and protection in Israel's future glory. Let's go back to Isaiah 54. There's going to be peace, protection, and security for Israel in the kingdom. Isaiah 54, verse 11 says, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires. Oh, it's the person that's so much anxiety being tossed to and fro and ups and downs and the, uh, the, the, the struggles of life pull them in so many different directions and they lack stability. But God says, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires. God's going to give them stability, a foundation, strength, security. And even though Jerusalem would go through times of devastation and judgment, God promised to rebuild the city in beauty. And great glory. In verse 12, And I will make thy windows of a gates, and thy gates of carbuncle, thy borders of pleasant stones. It's going to be a beautiful city once again. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. He's going to establish them in righteousness and peace. And all of this is based again on His faithfulness. Not their goodness, not their great military might and strength, not their alliances, 
but based on his own faithfulness and love for them. Christian, may we understand our place, that God is working in your life individually just the same, that he's a faithful God, that if we submit ourselves to him, that he has a whole plan for our lives that he wants to bring to fruition. There are people God wants us to reach with the gospel. There are children God wants us to raise the next generation to honor him, to glorify him. There are ministries God wants us to be a part of in serving him in the church here. And it starts with him, not us. It starts with his goodness, his glory, his faithfulness. And here God says in verse 13, And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Oh, I can't think of a greater need today than to teach the next generation about the Lord, about who God really is, about the fact that God is your creator. He made you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. That he is your savior. He wants you to be forgiven and have eternal life with him. That he's your Lord, your master, that he's the one that's in control that he has authority over your life and our job is to submit and to surrender to his authority. Oh, we need to know God. In verse 16, he says, Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire that bringeth forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the waster to destroy. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. God is not promising unlimited immunity from attack, but he's saying that they would never be consumed. And it's a fact, when you look at history, it is a, nothing short of a miracle that Israel still exists today after all of the bondage, captivity, and murders, and killings, and uh, attempts to annihilate them, and even still today, their continued existence is a testimony of God's faithfulness. And God is promising that he has a future plan for them to restore them, to bless them. But notice he said in verse 16, I created the smith that bloweth the coals. You think of uh, a blacksmith that may be forming and forging in a deep fire. Think about enduring that, having to go through the, the fiery furnace, so to speak, but to come out refined like gold. There's a process that God puts Israel through to purge and to shape them in his image. And we often talk about as a Christian that that's the process that our Christian life is. Sanctification, that every day God is shaping me and forming me to become more like Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does for all of us. But God says, I'm in control of that. I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire. That's not always easy to understand. That as difficult as circumstances can be in life, that God says, hey, I'm the one that's in control of all of that. We don't always like trials and tribulations, but they're part of the Christian life. And he promises, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, meaning you will not be totally destroyed. Hey, listen, from a Christian's perspective, the worst that man can do is to kill me and to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Hey, I, that's what I was saying during COVID, at the height of it, that for the Christian, it's a win-win situation, that I'm walking with the Lord, and if it's his choice to bring me to glory, then so be it. I'll see him face to face. 
And so for the Christian, we can rest on the fact that our salvation is so secure that we'll never be destroyed. That we have an eternal life guaranteed, promised by God himself. We have a faithful God. Now maybe you hear that and you think that that means I can just do whatever I want to do and sin. That's a really cold way to think after all God's done for you. Now the right Christian response is, Lord, I don't deserve any of this. I was your enemy. I deserve hell, but you saved me. You've forgiven me, and now I'm eternally secure in you. The right response is, Lord, the best I know how. Every breath I have is yours. Every opportunity I have to bring you glory, I'll take it. That my life now is only going to be about following you, just like Paul said. That's the right response. And God promises here restoration, rebuilding, beauty, peace, and prosperity. And all of it's going to be fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is going to come again. And he's not going to come like that suffering servant we read about in Isaiah 53 that died on the cross. No, he's going to come riding on a white horse as a judge, as a devourer. He's going to judge all the wicked nations that rose against his people Israel, by the way, and rose against him and his truth. He's going to judge and smite all those nations. By the way, I often wonder, America is not mentioned in Bible prophecy. Will that include America too? All the nations that forget God. But he's going to come and he's going to sit on David's throne right there in Jerusalem to rule and reign. And if you're saved, you're going to rule and reign with him, the Bible says. We'll be participating with him in that glorious kingdom. Someone wrote an interesting sale quote regarding Jerusalem and its restoration. Maybe some of you like to go on Zillow and look at houses and look at house prices and all that thing. And someone wrote, free beautiful homes to be given away in a perfect city. 100% pure water. No light bills, perpetual lighting, permanent pavement, nothing undesirable, everything new, perfect health, immunity from accidents, the best of society, beautiful music, free transportation, secure a contract today for the new Jerusalem. Listen, folks, these days may be coming very, very soon. When we see what's happening around the world and all the turmoil, it's setting the stage for the return of Christ. And I've been preaching on this the last few weeks. His coming could be very soon. Before we finish this message, the Lord could come back. I'll be honest, I live my life, and really that's the way the Bible teaches us, as if we will be that generation that doesn't see death, but gets raptured up to glory. Are we living that way? Are we making the most of the opportunities we have to get the gospel out to serve the Lord now before he comes. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its faithful promises. Lord, we learn of your character. We learn of your power and might to be able to be in control of all of human history. We learn of your love and concern for your people Israel and for us as Christians as well. Help us never to doubt your love, your goodness. Help us never to, not, to doubt your power. There's nothing too hard for you. That what you have purposed, 
will never be overthrown or undone. Help us to rejoice in the salvation and the eternal security that we have in Christ. But may we also, Father, in these last days, live in light of all these truths as well. May we continue standing for what's right. May we have a passion to share your gospel before it's eternally too late for sinners. Lord, help us to be aware and mindful and vigilant of your return. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed this morning, my message today wasn't just for us to be supportive of Israel. I hope you understand that. It was to understand all that God has promised for Israel and for you. And maybe you're here and you're not sure about God's promises regarding your salvation. I talk to so many people that say, I hope I'm saved. No one can ever know for sure if you're saved. No, God promises you can know for sure. He said, these things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 13. God wants us to know. Maybe you're here as a pastor. I'm not sure about my salvation. I have some questions or doubts. If I'm saved, if I have eternal life, would you pray for me? If that's you, you can raise your hand right now. We'd be so happy to pray for you. I'm so thankful. Last week, we had a lady come forward, receive Christ. Maybe there's someone here this morning and said, Lord, pray for me. I want to make sure of my salvation. God's spoken to me. Well, how many of us as Christians say, Pastor, I want to make sure I'm ready for when Christ returns. These promises can be fulfilled in just a few moments, really. And I want to make sure I'm ready, serving the Lord, getting the gospel out. God's spoken to me.